Amen, amen. Hey, this is Family Sunday, and so for those of you who this is your first time and you're thinking, good night, that kid makes a lot of noise. They do. Every last Sunday of the month and every single day in their parents' home, right? <laughs> every single day in their parents' home. And so we want to, man, as, as parents, we want to model for our kids what it looks like to lean forward and engage and pay attention. And, and it's good for your kids to see that. It's good for them to say that, man, mom and dad are here, grandma and grandpa are here, and they're leaning in and they're engaging and they're paying attention to the word. They're writing it down. And they're going to bring this back up with me later because it's modeling for our kids what it looks like to be mature followers and believers of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And so look, we, got, we have four-year-olds in the room. And so they're struggling to not fidget, and they're going to fidget. And they're struggling to stay in their seat, and they're going to get up out of their seat. And they're struggling not to respond vocally, and, and we're going to try and keep that to a minimum, okay? And so but. We, we think it's such a great thing to have our family in here uh, together, and so we rejoice in that and want to be giving grace to those who have kids who are still just trying to get the feel of what it looks like to sit and be still for an extended period of time. And today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11, so just a short passage today. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Now, when we prepare to come into this and what we need to know is kind of the, where the Corinthians would have been in the course of this letter. So Paul has just laid a, uh, a really difficult uh, edict on them, this really difficult instruction. He's, he's uh, kind of uh, made this pronouncement that they're engaged in illicit behavior. They have uh, gross immorality in their midst. And then he's turned in 6, 1 through 8, and he's addressed the subject of lawsuits. So I want to pick up in verse 5, because I want to reframe for us, in some sense, where their minds would be when he picks up 9 through 11, because it's incredibly instructive. So back in chapter 6 and verse 5, look what he says. He says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? And so he says, look, you have issues in your midst. Is nobody there with it enough? Is nobody there wise enough to come between these brothers and to come between these sisters and say, hey, look, let's settle it. Let's just, let's just calm down and let's talk through this. Let's settle it. I say this to your shame. And so Paul's picking up that, that they're not employing this methodology. So he begins to describe what's happening there. He says, but brother goes to law against brother. And, and that before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So he challenges them. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? And that question hangs in the air. Then he comes again, he says, why not rather be defrauded? Amen, that still just kind of hits us and just, just sinks into where we are. And, and why do we not want to be defrauded? Why do we not want to suffer wrong? Because I have this sense of personal autonomy and justice. I have this, this sense about me, we have this sense about us that, that nobody gets to step in and tell us that we are wrong. We may invite them to weigh in and, 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 and affirm us in our decisions, but nobody has the right to come in and tell me that I'm wrong. Now look what Paul says. He says, this should be your posture. This should be your demeanor. You should be willing to suffer for others. And this is easy if we recognize we're wrong. Getting to recognizing you're wrong is a whole different set, but it's easy if we recognize we're wrong, but, but, but so often we're captivated with this understanding that we are right and that our rightness should be recognized by other people, and so when they violate that, when we are asked to suffer and in our minds we are not wrong, we push back. We push back hard. But this is what he says. He says, 
Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not, why not rather be defrauded? And then he turns and he describes the situation that's going on there. He says, but you wrong your brother and you defraud your brother. Why don't they want to suffer wrong? Why don't they want to be defrauded? Because they're consistently engaged in the pursuit of defrauding and making those around them suffer wrong, even their own brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's a hard truth for us to accept. That's a hard truth for them to accept. That our posture, that our disposition should be one where we readily accept suffering. Where we welcome, we tune our hearts to receive being defrauded. Even when we're right. And so this is where their minds are. They're a little bit frustrated and, and, and they're recognizing their failure in this. And so let me read 9 through 11 and then we'll walk through. Look what he writes. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Of such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. And so he opens it up, and, and, and so they have this in their mind that they have been engaged in illicit acts. They have been engaged in, in defrauding and wronging those in their gathering and not, not wearing well the badge of Christianity, not displaying well the love of Jesus to their surrounding community. So he asked this question. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, according to verse 9, who are the unrighteous? The unrighteous are those who engage in defrauding and wronging. All of them. So in their minds, hanging over them in that instant, is this understanding that, that there's a possibility that I will not receive, I will not inherit the kingdom of God based upon my actions. Because our actions dictate where our hearts are. What is this business about inheritance, and what is he talking about with the kingdom of God? And this is, this is somewhat new for Paul in 1 Corinthians. Well, John 3 really gives us a, a picture of what it looks like in this understanding of the kingdom of God. You'll remember back to John 3, this man of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, he comes and he speaks to Jesus. He communicates with Jesus. And he says, look, no one can do these signs unless God is with him. And Jesus answered in verse 3, he says, truly, truly, I say that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus is communicating that if you are to receive, if you are to inherit the kingdom of God, then something has to change to fundamentally be altered inside of you. And Nicodemus doesn't understand this. And so there's this extended conversation about what exactly it means to be born again. But simply put, we would say that it is a faith tether to Jesus in his good and right work upon the cross, which redeems us, which forgives us, and it is our life lived in constant obedience to him that demonstrate the veracity of that tether, that demonstrate the strength and the truthfulness of that tether. Our lives should be different if they are marked by the sacrifice of Jesus. Our lives should be different. He says, and, and, and you're going to inherit, you're going to receive the kingdom of God. 
but we recognize in some sense the kingdom of God is our current and future possession. Your citizenship, Peter reminds us, resides in heaven, and our inheritance is there. 1 Peter 1.4 says that it is three things. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is kept safe until the day he reveals it, until the day he comes again. There is good news for you. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, your inheritance is kept safe. But the guarantee of this, of this inheritance is dependent upon your faith tether, your faith connection to Jesus. And so Paul is polling them. He's asking them this question, in essence, are you righteous? We would say that based upon their behavior, based upon the ways that they're acting, there's at least some question rolling around in their minds of, are we righteous? For some of us this week, as we reflect upon our actions, our attitudes, our behaviors, our speech patterns, the things we tried not to say but said anyway, the things we tried not to look at but looked at anyway, then we're asking ourselves the same question, are we righteous? Or am I merely going through the motions and saying the right things at the right time? Am I righteous? So Paul comes in and he, and he has this stunning command for them in the latter half of verse 9. He says, do not be deceived. This is the only command in 9 through 11. It's the command to not be deceived. And it's this, this idea that the idea of, of pushing back against deception is the constant course of our lives. It's the constant course of our lives. And so one of the things we have to recognize is that there is a real battle, there is a real war being waged for your soul. That even if you are a Christian, if you're a person who has committed in faith to Jesus Christ, then the object of the enemy is to derail you. So we have to waken ourselves to the reality of a spiritual plane in which our very lives are hanging in the balance. Peter addresses his audience in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5 and verse 8. And he says, be sober-minded. In essence, pay attention. Wake up. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. What is he doing? He's seeking someone to devour. Do not be deceived. Do not be lulled into complacency. Do not hang the hopes of eternity upon something you said when you were a child. Hang the hopes of eternity on the goodness of Jesus in his finished work on the cross. What are ways that we are deceived? We recognize that if you are a Christian, if you're a person who hangs your hopes on the goodness of Jesus and his sacrificial death and resurrection, if this is the testimony of your heart, then, then you are seeking to be led astray. Then you are seeking, uh, he is seeking to deceive you and he's doing this through one of two ways. One is to sidetrack you. The enemy wants you to be so incredibly busy doing anything other than living for Jesus. He wants to lead you to this belief that some other pursuit is greater than the pursuit of making his name famous in your life. And there are good pursuits that he will lead you to obsess over and, and, and to follow down. He will lead you to believe that marriage is the ultimate goodness, that kids are the ultimate goodness, that making money or career or a name for yourself or, or good works and kind works and charitable actions to others, that these are ultimate things 
These are never ultimate things. These are things done in service to the one true king who has changed our hearts and who alone lays claim to our lives. We can get so distracted chasing good things that we miss the ultimate thing that is Jesus Christ. We can get so distracted focusing on ourselves instead of focusing on the outward manifestation of the ministry of the Spirit and that to the lives of the people that God has placed within our community. He would like to see you sidelined. This enemy who prowls around as an adversary seeking someone to devour, he wants to see you fall, and he wants to see you fall hard. He, wants, he lives to constantly remind you of your former manner of existence and your former manner of life, and he delights in seeing you walk in it. We have a variety of backgrounds in this room. Some of us were raised in Christians' home, and we can scarcely remember a time where we weren't following Jesus, where we weren't engaged in church. And we have a group of people who, man, this is, this is no close approximation of your life. This is no close you know, resemblance of, of what has been your experience, that you are so incredibly far from Jesus, so incredibly in, in just invested in sin. The object of the enemy is to repeatedly tell you that that is who you are, that you're living a lie, you're living a falsehood, that you are deceived. So he causes you to doubt the veracity, the truthfulness of your faith. And recognize in this, when he does this, he is not reminding you of the sacrificial death of Jesus. He's reminding you of your failures. We as Christians recognize that we have an, a, sense, a sense of assurance of faith, not based upon what I have done, but based upon the finality of what Jesus has done for me. When my focus moves upon to my actions and my having received and off of him and him having sacrificed, then of course it's going to engender doubt. Then of course it's going to engender confusion. Why? Because salvation is not something that is on me. It's something done by him. He wants to see you confused. He wants to see you sidelined. He wants to see you sidelined when it's going to cost somebody something wants to see you step out on your wife. He wants to see you engage in illicit business practices. He wants to see you destroy your faith at a point in an opportunity where those around you have looked to you for encouragement. Why? Because that is the maximum point of casualty. And what do we as a church need to do in that time? We need to stone the person who sinned. Not really. We need to... <laughs> Man, some of you are like, where's the stone, honey? Get that boy up here. Throw it hard. <laughs> Golly. Man, there's some in this room you do not want to confess sin to. <laughs> Step back a little bit. Man, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have this wonderful opportunity to come alongside our, 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 our fellow Christians, our fellow pilgrims, and when they sin and, and they do horrendous things, we have this terrific opportunity to come alongside them and to visibly display the grace of God that is present in our lives in salvation over the course of our lives and to help them back upon the lane. Not to berate them, not to help them feel bad for their actions. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. That's not your place. Our job is to assist them, to help them see the gravity of their sin as we show them the word, but to encourage them back to the path of righteousness. 
if you're lost in this room, if Christianity for you is something that you are exploring, something you are looking into, can I tell you there are two primary ways that I see over and over again that the enemy wants you to be deceived. One is he's going to lead you to a belief that you can finally be good enough to be a Christian. He's going to point out things in your life that are just right on the cusp of being good enough for you to be a Christian, and that when you finally get there, then it'll all make sense. There is no such place. There is never a time that you'll be good enough to be a Christian. Secondarily, he will tell you that you are too broken, too ruined, and too marred. So on the one, he keeps moving the carrot further and further, and on the other one, he tells you, don't even try, don't even start. You could never get there. Both of these things are a lie. Anyone can come to salvation because salvation is dependent upon Jesus, not upon us. It's not the goodness in my heart that brought me to salvation in our God. It is the goodness of Jesus who died upon the cross that brings me to salvation. And so we look at this list, right? So you look at this list, and certainly uh, there's the potential that there were those in the room that day when they heard the person reading these out loud, And just kind of running through this and saying, oh, I'm not an idolater. Nope, I'm not this. Nope, I'm not greedy. Nope, I'm not a drunkard. Nope, I'm not a reviler. Nope, I'm not a swindler. Looks like I'm inheriting the kingdom of God. What's wrong with you jokers? (laughs) See ya! The the list that that Paul employs here is meant to be a catch-all. It's meant to trap all of us. Why? It's meant to trap all of us so that we would recognize that none of us is righteous. No, not one. None of us. None of us has any room to brag. None of us has any room to boast. None of us has any room to berate the people around us and say, come and be as me. Come and be as I am. Why? Because we see in this list the the incomparable love of God that he overcame each and every one of these sins. All of our waywardness all of our deceitfulness, all of the idolatry of our hearts, all of the greed welling up inside of me, he overcame each and every one of these things, and we add our sin to the list. This is who we are. Or rather, this is who we were. The goodness and loving kindness of our God comes close to us in the place of brokenness. Look at this word he offers Do not be deceived. He runs through the list of sins, and then he has the most freeing words found in the gospel. Of such were some of you. Notice the time of that. This is no longer who you are. This is who you were. This is no longer who you are. This is who you were. You are no longer enslaved to sin. You were dead. He has made you alive. The gospel, the New Testament, is full of these promises visited upon us. We see this in in Romans 5 and 6. It says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the adulterer, the idolater, the greedy person, and the swindler. He died for you when you were weak, when you were broken. Ephesians 2 gives us this beautiful picture of the gospel come close to us, picking up in verse 4. It says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
Have you spent much time with dead people? They are boring and they have an inability to be stimulating conversation partners. Why? Because they are dead and this is where we were. We weren't dead and moving towards him. We weren't dead and getting closer. We were dead and rotting, necrotic in our sin. But when he found us, he made us alive. We were dead in our trespasses and he has made us alive with Christ. It is by grace we have been saved. So when we look at this list, we don't see a list of former condemnation currently in place and exalting and describing who I am. We see a list of who I was. I am that no longer I am set free. Why? Based on the goodness of our God. And so when we have this temptation to see ourselves in light of our former waywardness, to see our identity encapsulated in our former sin, we counter that with this testimony that I am that no longer. It is who I was. But I find my identity in Jesus and in him alone. And how has God overcome our waywardness? How has he defeated this sin that wells up in our heart? How has he made dead flesh alive? How has he taken the blind and given them sight? How has he taken the lost and helped them to be found? How has he found us who dwelled in darkness and we liked it? We recoiled from the light. And how has he shown the light of the gospel in our hearts? Paul shows us three things. Look at the, the forcefulness of which these things combat uh, that, that we were this. The way this flows out in the language, it says, in such were some of you, but you were washed. In such were some of you, but you were sanctified. In such were some of you, but you were justified. That's the beautiful contrast of this. In such were some of you, but you were washed. God found you sullied, dirty, and broken. And he took you dirty, he took you sullen, he took you moving away from the gospel, and he and he alone made you clean. It's not God plus your good works. It's not God plus your inclination to move towards him. It is God moving in, investing himself at the point of your sin, and the stain of your sin upon your soul and upon your life, and infecting those around you, and he and he alone washes you. And he does that. And he offers this, and he extends this, and he finds those, those some of us, he finds us in these sins, and he sanctifies us. He has washed you, he has made you clean. The picture of sanctification is, is this, this reception of holiness. How many of you, if you were to go out and meet people on the street who know you and you were to say, would you describe me? How many of these people would say, oh, you're the holiest person I know? Very few of us. The greedy liar in the back, him and him alone. But we recognize that this is who we are. Our former manner of existence in our former life is dead. It is gone. We are now washed. We are now holy. If you've ever messed up in front of family, family has a mind like an elephant. They do not forget. They frequently remind you of things. This is why it's so hard to see life change take place in front of family because they, oh, he's just, he's just, he's just on this Christian thing for a little while. He's going to return to how he used to be. He's a drug addict. He's a loser. He's worthless. 
Whenever I get together with my family, my brother, six years older than me, has this awful tendency of reminding me of the most asinine things I ever did as a child. Remember that time you almost burned the kitchen down? You're such an idiot. <laughs> Man, I'm 38 years old. I was four. <laughs> Who leaves an unattended four-year-old with matches? <laughs> Somebody should call CPS. That's all I'm saying. You know, open that case file. But when we meet people that know us, they know all the trailing indications of our former manner of existence, right? And so if, if you've been steeped in sin, if you weren't raised in a Christian home and you're not able to discern a time when, when you've not walked with the Lord, and, and can I just tell you, that's a sweet blessing. If that's your testimony, that's amazing. God's faithfulness to you and the generational faithfulness of your family to display the gospel and raise, Christians in that, raise kids in that environment. But if that's not your testimony, then when you encounter people and you meet people and, and they cast aspersions towards you based upon who you were, I just want to show this picture to you. In a very real sense, if you were to stand before the, the, the court in heaven and God were to look at you and evaluate your life and, and knowing your sin, knowing the trailing record of, of just kind of rampage that your life has exacted upon those who have come into contact with you, knowing all of these things, if he were to look at you, the verdict that he would utter concerning you would be innocent. Your record has been expunged. Those sins, they are no more. That former manner of existence in life, it does not exist in the economy of God and his justice. Because when he looks at you, he reckons you righteous. And the fiery hot righteousness of our God burns away the stain of sin that was formerly who you were. That's no longer who you are. You are his child, redeemed. You are washed, sanctified, and justified. And he's accomplished this not on the power and the goodness of your works and the inclination of your heart moving towards him, but he's accomplished this according to the name and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has sealed this according to Ephesians by the power and the veracity of his spirit. We remain forever in his hand. Nothing can take us out. We remain, our goodness is dependent upon Christ's goodness. Our salvation dependent upon his goodness, his willingness to be defrauded, his willingness to be wronged for our sins. Do not be deceived. Let me pray for us. God, do not let us live in deception. Do not let us live in this false understanding of who we are. But let us embrace the goodness of your gospel. Having been washed, having been made holy, and having been justified by the power of the name of the Son and the authority of Jesus. Father, I pray that the men and women this morning who are buying into the deception of the enemy would see victory in the name and the power and the affected work of Jesus for them. Help them not to believe the lies, but they would see freedom, that they would see release in the finished work of the cross. God, we thank you that even amongst those who are searching and asking questions of the gospel, 
that they can find freedom and release in your goodness, in your gospel. And the Son of God come, who surrendered his life on the cross, who died in our stead and in our place, that we receive the forgiveness of our sins, not because we're moving towards you, but because you came close to us when we were weak. And when we cried out for salvation and for forgiveness, at that moment we were washed. At that moment we were made holy. And at that moment we were reckoned righteous, afforded the perfect record of Jesus. So Father, we pray for your spirit to move in this place, that you would lead us and guide us in worship, and that you would point out for us ways that we need to follow in obedience.